I think I was afraid of using my voice because I was afraid to accept that I had lung cancer. But if we want to have the best care, we need to talk. We need to ask. And we need to be assertive. Speaking up doesn't need to be daunting. Consider gathering additional information from credible patient organizations, preparing questions you want to ask your doctor, taking notes at your next appointment, and asking about biomarker testing. Steps like these can potentially lead to care that is more focused on your needs. We have to be assertive, even though it's hard when you are fighting for your life. Visit bit.ly slash soundup for lung cancer for links to resources and to learn more about SoundUp, a patient-inspired, community-led campaign supported by Novartis to empower people affected by lung cancer. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Get a Verizon Business Unlimited plan from the network businesses rely on. Hey, Monica, with 5G Ultra Wideband in many more cities, you get up to 10 times the speed at no extra cost. Hello, downloads in no time. Plus, unlimited premium data and hotspot data to keep the signal flowing and your teams going. Come in or book an appointment with a Verizon business expert to find the right plan for your team. 5G Ultra Wideband available in over 1,700 cities with Business Unlimited Pro 2.0 smartphone plan. Speed comparison is to median Verizon 4G LTE speeds. Download speeds may vary depending upon network and coverage conditions and content optimization for 5G Ultra Wideband. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of the Benzenga Cannabis Hour for International Women's Month. My name is Javier Hasseb, Managing Director for Benzenga Cannabis and CEO of El Planteo. And I'm joined by one of my favorite journalists in the entire world. <laughs> one of the best cannabis journalists in the globe as well, Tebra Borchard. She's the CEO, Editor-in-Chief and Co-Founder of Green Market Report. It's an awesome, awesome media outlet focused on cannabis finance. I mean, if, if you're not reading Green Market Report, what are you doing? Deborah, <laughs> how are you today? Hey, Javier, it's so nice to see you. I miss you. Uh, I miss seeing you on the uh, conference circuit. And when you come up to the USA, we always somehow manage to hang out. So thank you to Benzinga for having me on as a co-host for this event. Thank you. We're so excited. I, you, you did such a great job at, at hosting uh, several panels of firesides at, at our cannabis conferences in the past. You know, it was due time for us to host a show with you. And, and we have an amazing lineup today, right? You know, you yeah. and there, well, look, there's lots of amazing women in the cannabis industry, whether they're on the science side, the activist side or, or running companies investing in companies, you know, we've really jumped into the industry and, you know, made it our own and really taken advantage of the opportunities here. And we continue to fight to take even more advantage of the opportunities that mm -hmm. present themselves. Now, I mean, on the one side, on the one hand, we like to think of ourselves as, as a progressive industry, an inclusive industry, but then you look at the numbers and that is not very well reflected in the figures, right? You know, I read one recent report saying 8% of CEOs in cannabis are women. You know, some of the most optimistic figures point towards some, somewhere close to 30% of women in the C-suite. Still not close to enough. I mean, what's, what's going on there? What's it's wrong? really tough. Um, and it's funny that you bring this up because I actually worked on a huge, huge white project, a white, right, white paper project. <laughs> with the NCIA and ArcView, and it was all about gender parity in the cannabis industry. I co-authored two of the papers, Equity Ownership and Access to Capital. And on Access to Capital, you know, there's no hard numbers um, for, for the data around how many female owned and operated companies have raised money. 
But what we did was we kind of walked back how many women were CEOs and founders, how much money had been raised. And we basically came up with this number that honestly, only a little over 1% of the female owned businesses have been able to raise capital in the cannabis industry. So 99% of the capital that is raised is going to male owned companies. And that's so discouraging. Um, you know, hopefully we can work towards changing that number. Um, but yeah, and, and we found that across most of the papers that we, we worked on was that there, there were indications that things were changing, but it was also clear that we have a long way to go. And it's also clear that we have to fight and work really hard to get these changes to take place. No one's just going to do it. And I think by just that one example of the capital raising, That's by bringing this to the market's attention, that change will start to happen. Will it? I mean, you know, it's, I hope it does, but, but it's one of those things that, you know, just, it's disheartening. Like 1% of, of dollars raised is ridiculous. And I've heard many stories like these, like firsthand, uh, you know, female founders saying things like, you know, I went to an investor meeting and they just told me, you know, maybe throw in some guys in your board yeah. or, you know, find a, a co-founder, which to me is the opposite of, of what should be happening, right? A lot of people now are hiring women or, or minorities to meet their diversity quotas. And that also, you know, has its problems, but the opposite is crazy. People telling female founders, go find a white dude. Yeah, put put some you know put some guys on the board. Um, you know, it's also one example that I put in the equity ownership uh, shows it. It's not even just at the entry level, at the startup level. You, we see this at the C-suite level. Um, I had an example of a company that changed its CEO fairly quickly. Uh, they had a male, they had a female, and then they had a male. And I looked at how many shares had been awarded to the male, the female, and the C you know, the third male CEO, just to see, well, what were their comp packages like? And as expected, the woman got less shares than either of the male CEOs that came before her and after her. And this was all public information. So it was all in SEC filings. So, you know, this was hard and hard data. So it's happening even at the, the highest levels, of the C-suite, the women are still kind of getting jilted and not getting their fair shake. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, and, and some of the guests we have on can even talk about, you know, women in the C-suite. They can also talk about women, you know, and their um, comp packages or even just mm -hmm. um, the investing side, you know, where women are taking the, the reins by their own hands and, and trying to, to shake things up through their own wallets. Totally. I mean, and, and that's a great segue for a first guest. Who, who is the CEO of a publicly traded cannabis company who can talk about this. And by the way, was discussing a little bit about machismo culture in Wall Street, before, you know, with us before. So, you know, with that, let's bring on Lori Glauser. She is the CEO and co-founder of EVO Labs, trades on the OTC, ticker is EVIO, same as the name. And EC, Finally, an easy OTC ticker to remember. <laughs> yes, <awesome. laughs> How are you doing? Great, Javier. Thank you so much for having me today. Hi, Deborah. It's really good to see you again. Hi, Lori. Lori and I have been associated with each other for several years now. I've always been impressed that um, not only did she start this company, but she's been able to, to, to retain her position because that's something we often see with female CEOs is 
when they go public or when they get an investment, suddenly they're, you know, booted out and, and Lori is hung in there. I know it's been a tough, tough year uh, with COVID, but you guys look like you're, you're kind of on the upswing now. Yeah, yeah, I feel like we definitely went through um, somewhat of a typical uh, expansion, contraction, and re-expansion phase. So we're we're kind of uh, in this re-expansion mode um, after we had uh, we hit the ground running back starting in 2014, um, and by 2016 we had several cannabis testing labs in multiple states. 2017, 2018, uh, we've since consolidated somewhat, and now we're rebuilding again. Well, I would think as more states start to legalize, yes. It always seems like the more states legalized, the more testing that needs to be done, the more products that got to be tested. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so we're really focused right now on, on the West Coast, so California, Oregon. Um, we also have a lab in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we are uh, really gearing our Berkeley laboratory to be um, the strongest, largest lab in the state. In fact, we already have probably the largest by square footage. Uh, we have a huge lab and we've actually merged our lab with um, the lab owned by Steep Hill. So the lab laboratories itself are now co-located together and we're together um, tackling the entire state. That's incredible. Now, I mean, Deborah, Deborah mentions, right, that the market is expanding. We're seeing more states go online and that increases the demand for testing. But doesn't that also increase competition? Are you seeing, because for quite a bit, you know, you were the omnipresent, you know, testing company. Yes. And that is seems to be the case still mostly, but I see a lot more competition popping up. How are you dealing with that? Yes. So there is a lot of competition popping up. There's more than 30 labs in um, in some of the more established states. Uh, and then new states are coming online. We're always evaluating as the new states come online, we're evaluating where we want to go next. Um, and as comp competition is concerned, it's, it's fairly localized because with, you know, the nature of cannabis is in state. So within states, um, we certainly have our, our competition. Um, but in these emerging states, uh, there's somewhere between 10 and 20 labs that are going to be applying to um, go into each state. So yes, there is a, there's a lot of them. However, I think that what we're finding in the laboratory space is that a lot of people will open a lab and recognize that the capital uh, required and the regulatory requirements are very, very high. So unfortunately, a lot of labs are not quite making it past the three, four, five year mark. Yeah. Does that create an opportunity for you guys then to, to either acquire these companies that are struggling or just pick them out and take I them out. Does. I think it does. It does. Certainly depending on the market and the, and the place, it, it certainly is. Um, and that has been our strategy along is we have acquired a number of, of labs who, who got into the business um, with uh, full expectation of being, you know, of being able to grow and be wildly successful. But once those capital requirements come in, they really needed a partner to come help uh, pick them up and move forward. And in some cases we found it was just more economical to um, to consolidate, uh, which is a little different from our initial strategy. Our initial strategy was to, you know, saturate a lot of regions. But what I'm looking forward to is if in the case of federal legalization and the opportunity to potentially ship samples or have some other way to deliver samples to the lab, um, it will really open the doors for us um, because right now we're fairly limited by, we have to drive uh, everywhere to go pick up samples and drive them back to the lab. So that is one of the more costly um, parts of our business actually, huh. from the standpoint of logistics. That's unexpected. Now, you know, Deborah was mentioning uh, 
it's pretty hard for women-led companies to raise money in the cannabis mm -hmm. industry, even one would, you know, even if you would expect the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at the same time, you mentioned it's extremely expensive to run a business like yours, right? Yeah. So how did you do it and how do you do it now? Yes. So, um, so I recently moved into the CEO role. I was previously the chief operating officer and founder, and my business partner had prior public company experience. So we went right into it as with a reverse merger, did a public company and approximately two, three years after we, after we opened our doors, we raised, um, we raised a multimillion dollar round. Um, and then, uh, we have since been able to raise money through the, through public markets, through, um, through getting some convertible debt. We don't like getting convertible debt, but we were able to raise some money that way. And as going forward though, our focus is on really be self-sustaining and to um, make the labs profitable while the Evio corporate may consider other lines of business or expand into other areas um, as uh, our labs um, and our lab model has been perfected um, and we seek other, other avenues of growth. You know, one thing I noticed when we were doing our gender equity reports or gender parity reports for NCIA, um, we talked about when female-owned companies were raising capital that they often have to prepare or, or present a pristine balance sheet or pristine yeah. business strategy. Yes. Um, we were we were kind of talking amongst ourselves, saying, you know, that we have all all had these stories where these guys walk in, they have an idea, they call their buddy, their buddy says, yeah, sure, I'll write you a check. And, and then we just, we, we scream because why isn't it that easy for us? And I know several uh, women who uh, lead fairly large companies who have said, I walked in with the most amazing business plan. It looked, I've been profitable. I had revenue. I had this, I had that. And I was still told no. Did, do you see that that's still kind of happening out there? Yeah. Well, I, I certainly, um, unfortunately have not seen it personally but again i've had a male partner also until fairly recently but i have seen it with other presentations i've been to a lot of investor conferences a lot of these um pitch pitch um competitions and i do see that there seems to be a lot more um uh detail orientation that like like there's a lot of more questions asked to women and i think that i do tend to see there's a there's sort of a gut check, gut feel that that investors might have when putting money into a certain company. It's about how they feel that the CEO will do. And I do get a sense that there may be some bias towards, towards men. It may be more relatable for the investors. Um, and, and or I feel that there might be questions in you know, the investor's mind about whether the, the woman could uh, do as good a job as a man. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you bring up uh, pitch competitions. One thing I've noticed is when there is no like real money involved, when there are, you know, a lot of pitch competitions are just like for recognition, right? Or, or maybe like a small award. Conference entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's something like, yeah, you get a pass for next year's whatever, right? And I noticed on those competitions where there is no money on the line, women tend to win, right? And that says something as well, right? Of, of how we like to pretend to support we women founded and women led companies when there's nothing at stake, right? When when we don't have to put our money where our mouths are. Uh, have you have you felt some of this, right? In, in general, right? When it, when it's like, oh yeah, we support you know women yeah. in business, and it's like, how do you do it? Yeah. Oh, we support you. I mean, yeah, with express support. 
verbal support. Yeah, that definitely rings true to me because I've been, you know, when I go to the pitch competitions, there's a nice mix. There's a lot of pro women, you know, energy there, and there's a lot of women on stage. When I go to the um, the pitches for the public company shows, you know, there's a couple like the Money Show, and there's a couple of other shows. Um, yeah, it's like that 95% men, and if you start looking at those presentations, it's it's almost all men, um, and. Uh, yeah, it, there's a clear, clear difference in those types of conferences. Um, and in fact, in the in the Wall Street oriented conferences and events, um, that's uh, the one I think I, I before we started recording, I think I mentioned to you that some of those events even hire atmosphere models to kind of mix it up a little bit at the after party, which I was really disappointed to hear that. I'm like, why can't we just invite more women to pitch at these investor conferences? So I'd like to see that. Right, we definitely uh, were, were talking about that before we started taping the show about um, how unfortunately things um, stay the same as much as we hope that they would change. And and I was talking with Javier about, a, I kind of went on a little Twitter rant last week or week before about um, a charity email that I got uh, from a cannabis company saying that they were going to have a golfing event and they were going to raise money for a charity. And, and that sounds all wonderful, but then the picture of the guys, it was all a bunch of white guys and the only female was serving drinks. And I thought, this isn't the kind of charity event I want to be involved with. And, and it just was kind of discouraging and saddening. It made me sad. It's like, really, this is after all we've said for the past, couple of years about, you know, trying to improve uh, women within the cannabis industry. And then they send something out like that. So tone deaf. Yeah. Yes. So I would like to give a little bit of a plug to the to the women in my business. So all of the lab directors we currently have right now and myself are all female. So while it's taking us, <laughs> yeah, that's it's, it's more than just you know the the snap. It's the the full yeah. clapping. I love that. And I promise you that was not planned. I had no specific need, you know, specific uh, intention to place women in all the lab director positions. But I will say that's just how it evolved, and they raised up into that position. Um, and as I'm, I'm rebuilding the board right now, and I'm looking very closely at a couple of female candidates for for our board as well. So um, I'm I'm excited to see how this could potentially if impact how we make decisions going forward, and um, really emphasizing while we're a public company um, and emphasize uh, shareholder value and so forth. We're also emphasizing health and well-being of our customer and the. Um, and how our employees are doing within the company as well. So we're uh, cognizant of all aspects and all stakeholders in the company. Definitely. Something interesting that you know happened this year, uh, El Planteo is this small company. We created a Spanish language uh, news website and more than half of the team are women. And for, for March 8th this year, the International Women's Day, they told me we're not working. And I hadn't thought of that. And I, I thought it was completely fair, right? Because we've learned in the past few years, you know, you don't say, you know, happy women's day or something like that. This is a day, you know, for, for the fight, you know, for the fight to continue. And, and I don't know, it's just something that, that they taught me this, this year, like, Hey, you should be giving your women the option to not work on, on that day. If they, if they want to, if they choose to, I don't know. I, I think it was a cool initiative. Uh, 
something new I learned this year. Uh, and that was, there was no question. I, my question was completely financial, <laughs> right? There's room for growth. There's, there's, so there's, there's still hope and there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is room for growth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, switching gears a little bit, you know, let's go to the financial side of this, yeah. right? Let's, what's the investment case for, for EVO, right? You know, I, we have a few minutes left. This is a, a finance focused show, you know, and, and, and many times supporting, supporting women in business means investing in their companies, right? That's a great way to support women in business more than, you know, you know, like saying, Hey, I support you or, Hey, I, I, you know, sometimes money speaks louder than words. <laughs> Yeah, thanks very much for that question. I really appreciate giving having the opportunity to talk about Evio. So Evio is, um, as you mentioned, it's it's got a very strong foothold in the cannabis testing market across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we test both compliance cannabis as well as hemp and CBD. The hemptesting.com website is a new, a relatively new addition to us the last couple of years, and it's been a really fantastic business for us to capture all the testing for hemp and CBD products that can be mailed into us. So it's a, it makes a really nice uh, channel for us. Um, as And going forward, we're continuing, as I mentioned, we expect to really dominate the California market, the West Coast market, and hopefully in future, we'll be able to do testing for more states than that without adding new labs. One of the lessons we learned in the last couple of years is a new lab uh, can cost a couple million dollars to get up and running. And that investment case, um, you know, it takes it takes several years to come up and running. So what we're doing is really focusing all of our um, investment into a fewer fewer labs, uh, fewer larger labs, so that we can attract a much bigger market. Um, we also have um, considerable expertise that we've acquired over the last six years um, that allows us to support our customers with their product formulations, um, doing um, research and analysis um, above and beyond testing, uh, because testing is very quickly becoming a commodity, right? Every every product that gets sold in a dispensary has to be tested, and that's pretty much every state right now. The value-added services that come into play when we're providing um, technical expertise, uh, R&D services, uh, and um, um, environmental uh, testing services for these for these companies for our clients. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Did, did you have any final questions, Zebra? Oh, I'm good. Okay. okay. So thank you so much for joining us. Before you leave us, where can people reach you? You know, uh, potential investors, people interested in, in your services. Sure. How sure. Do we yeah, any investor inquiries just send directly to me, Lori, L-O-R-I, at eviolabs.com. Um, for any other inquiries, for customer inquiries, info at eviolabs.com. Come check out our website uh, and reach out to me. I look forward to hearing from you. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. What a great first guest. I am so excited for the rest of this show. <laughs> I know. She's um, she's really a, a, a lovely person. And, you know, when they talk about investing, you know, she was talking about how people often will invest in the person as well as the company. She's mm -hmm. just a, a stellar person. And I'm glad to see, you know, as you mentioned, right, as the cannabis industry grows, many of the women-led companies got acquired. And that is great, right? Like, as a woman founder, you want to build and you want to exit and you want to, you want to, you know, make what you what you deserved. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we're seeing, like, again, just men take over the industry. And, and it's nice to see some of these women, you know, 
being able to retain that that position in the C-suite and, and take their companies public, you know, similar to to a Kernis case, for instance, is another one that you know that comes to mind when 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 thinking, you know, women who started their companies and 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 managed to retain control when they. And they you, you hit founder fatigue, you get tired, you've worked 80 hour weeks for, for months on end and, and you do, you get kind of tired and, and someone walks in and says, you know what, you can go and I'll just take over. And sometimes I think women just say, you know what, I'm exhausted. Sure. <laughs> sure. Just take over. Um, and that's unfortunate um, because I think that then usually it's really hard for them to parlay that into the next CEO gig uh, without starting another company. Um, I think it's yeah. easier for the men to start a company, be CEO, and then parlay that into other CEO gigs at other companies. So yeah. um, I think, she, again, yeah, she was a great guest. Yeah. And talking about retaining power and 80 hour uh, work weeks, that's <laughs> our next guest, right? <laughs> Next another, up. another person that I, I've known for, for some time. Do you I remember the first enjoyed. time you met her? I, I remember perfectly the first time I met her. Do you at all? You know, we're at that, that would easily be going back at least four years. Um, I think we met each other on uh, online sounds terrible, but through email before we got to meet each other in person. <laughs> met online, yeah, that's I know we that met online like at, at the uh cannabis women uh <laughs> networking swiping. <laughs> the, um, the, I, the, the time I met her, and we're talking about uh Emily Paxia, managing partner of Poseidon Asset Management, considered to be the first cannabis focused hedge fund. Uh, and I remember, you know, her inviting me to visit her first office in San Francisco when I was visiting. And she told me, hey, we're a cannabis hedge fund. I'm like, why are you talking about? How is that even possible? <laughs> I <laughs> know it was, it was true. Because I was writing, I started writing about cannabis, like in 2013, I mean, many, many years ago. And, you know, to find someone to talk uh, about cannabis investing for a story, it was Emily. <laughs> I mean, she and her brother were really the first ones to take the plunge, to to take the risk and the stigma. Because again, a lot of people think now, look, you're seeing these SPACs with Jay-Z and, and, you know, 250 million and a half a billion. And you see all that today and you think, you forget seven, eight years ago, this was not like that. It was really tough. And if you chose to invest in cannabis back then, people went, you know, no one's going to respect you. And boy, you've given up a good career to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And Emily and her brother said, you know, we're willing to take that risk. We really think this is going to be a huge deal. And they did. And they were right. <laughs> And Emily. so welcome, Emily. <laughs> Thank you Thanks for having time. me. What an introduction. <laughs> it's really generous of you. And of course, I remember where I met both of you when you guys were both pioneers in uh, in the space. So kudos to you. I think it's been great working together as a community to build this industry and to make it easier for people to come in. You've come That's such a long way, you know, back then <laughs> I remember you were subletting a, a, a tiny office when you first started and someone else's office, like 
something like that, right? It's, yeah. and, and you've come a long way. Now you're like launching another fund. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about, about Poseidon, right, from the beginning to today? Yeah, um, you know, we, so I co-founded Poseidon with my brother and we put it together in over 2012, 2013 after Colorado had voted to legalize cannabis. So we knew it was coming January, 2014. And, and we were pretty mission driven because we, we had heard through, unfortunately, having our parents both sick and pass away from cancer that, that cannabis could have been a palliative care resource for them. And so that I think gave us a really open mind around it to take the plunge to step in. And I definitely remember the LinkedIn messages that <laughs> when, I, when I announced what we were doing, people that I used to work with in, in more of the consumer and finance sector were like, uh, are you sure? <laughs> but it's all good. I mean, uh, now they're very interested in what we're doing. And now there's a lot of crossover to my kind of my old life and, and where I am now. But um, yeah, we, you know, we put it together. We knew people would want to invest in the industry. We knew companies needed funding and it really hadn't been formalized in that way. And so the reason we structured the first fund as a hedge structure is because we were, we really viewed it as an opportunity fund and wanted to be able to participate in both the public and the privates and drive returns as much as we possibly could. So that's why we did that. And then we launched our second fund, which was a venture fund focused just on private Series A or later stage companies. And then alongside all of those or those two funds, we've run seven syndicated direct vehicles where, you know, we set the terms, we get in on these structures that are we believe to be advantageous for the fund. And then if you're in the investor uh, ecosystem of Poseidon, you can participate directly alongside the funds into those uh, opportunities. And then our third fund, uh, you probably know him, Patrick Rea, who was the founder of Canopy Boulder, really the leading and first accelerator in the cannabis industry. And then he had several seed stage funds. He um, he kind of was just looking to get back in more on the fund side. And so he's joined us to, he's really kind of spearheading that structure and and we're on the investment committee and and all pulling on the same oars, but we're really excited because that's more of kind of back to the earlier stage companies of the, of the spectrum. Um, kind of our, our, our hypothesis around that is when we first got in, it was all white space. And now it's not all white space, but it's, it's space that's ripe for disruption and innovation. And so that's why we're kind of leaning in on that earlier stage again. So really excited. It's an incredible time to be in cannabis, yeah. I love that you're saying the early stage because I had started to see a trend with the funds that were all swinging over to the late stage. And I think because so many got burned that were investing in companies in the early years. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to see the proven company as, as they would call it. But unfortunately, when, every, when, when you saw a lot of that money shift over to the proven late stage side, the startups were then left out in the cold. And that, that of course, makes it hard to grow. We don't have that capital that you need. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we first moved into the Series A, there wasn't a lot there. And we were actually part of the reason we went there is we were like, uh-oh, we're worried our companies won't have Series A funding or later. So we've got to get smart on on making sure people start focusing on that aspect of where company, the maturity of companies. And then we also just thought, you know, if, if there isn't a lot of capital playing in that space, then we can really drive, you know, better terms and, and structures. But you're absolutely right, Deborah. There's like 
and now it's at everyone's at that stage. So it's like, okay, well now we'll move back earlier again because we have like, it's almost limitless deal flow at the earlier stages. And, and like you, I was like, I have nowhere to send these people. And frankly, we love early stage companies. We love founders. We love entrepreneurship. And so, and all of us do. I mean, Patrick, obviously, I mean, he spent time uh, running the accelerator. That's absolutely a love for entrepreneurship. So I think we're really excited to be back at this stage and, and to be able to look at deals that we hadn't been able to look at since really 2017. Mm -hmm. so, so that's that's the garden fund, right? The one you're yeah. talking about now. Yeah. What, what kind of companies are you looking at, right? You know, uh, from, from, you know, for founders, for people thinking about reaching out to you, what are yeah. you looking at? So we're doing everything. Uh, we'll do plant touching, ancillary, everything, because we've always done, well, not always. We've done that since about halfway through 2014 when we realized we really wanted to lean in and get into the plant touching side. So we'll do ancillary companies, plant touching companies. Um, we're looking at what we're calling post-seed. So it wouldn't count us as kind of that first money in, like the angel or friends and family round. We're after that, where you're starting to dem demonstrate traction of your key performance indicators or KPIs, or you've got revenue that you're generating, or you've got a license and you're ready to open your doors and it's imminent that you'll be generating your first dollars. So we're trying to be pretty flexible in it as we always have been. You have to be flexible when investing in the cannabis industry. It's a wildly shifting sector, but, um, but that's what we're looking at. And we're doing about 50% holdback. So we'll allocate 50% of the capital in our first rounds into the companies and we're holding back to follow on in additional rounds. Um, but I guess we're gonna enter anywhere from a half a million to a million dollars on the first bite of a company, depending on the size, of course. And um, like, whereas fund two was more three to $8 million on just out of the fund. And then we had the syndicated sidecar. So um, this is more in that half million to a million range. Are you um, allotting maybe a certain percentage that you want to make sure goes to female owned businesses or, or because you are a woman, maybe you're like, look, I don't, I'm just going to treat everybody the same. Or do you try to, use Poseidon to kind of advance women-owned companies? So I, you, I, because we were a later stage, and I think you were making a great point earlier, there just hadn't been that many women at the later stage companies. So I was voting with my own dollars on female founders. I, I invested in early stage product companies like Leaf Goods up in Oregon, Bicito down in LA, female founded companies. Like that's kind of how I vote with my dollars. Um, Plant, uh, personal plants, Amanda Ryman's firm or company. It's really cool. Um, so I do, I do my own investing to vote for women, which is great. And actually in my personal life, I invest, invested in a plant-based seafood company. That's a female founded company. So there's a lot of things I do, but you know, as a firm, we are very focused on, does it fit the thesis? Does it fit the stage and the strategy and the structure? But I will say the first company that is our target to fund on the closing is a female founded company for this round. So okay. It's, but you know what? She's just an incredible powerhouse. And I mean, I hope it happens. We'll see. We're, you know, cranking through the diligence. Um, I, you know, and early on too, we invested in Juliana Carella. She was one of the early um, edibles founders of Auntie Dolores in, in the Bay Area. And then she also has Treatables, which is a nationally, yeah, it's a nationally distributed pet product. And she's, I mean, she's actually gone through uh, rigorous programs to make sure she's got the best, you know, pet product on the market, animal product on the market. Um, 
And in fact, I just connected her down into uh, Mexico for some distribution through LATAM. So she's got some great things going. So we do have females in our, in our, both of our funds, but um, you know, not as much as I'd like to see. And it's funny, I was just talking, I know you both know Tahira very well. We were just chatting yesterday and we were saying that was one of the things we were fearful of with the pandemic is this like drive back to the two dimensional digital world that we're in. It feels a little harder for, as a female to kind of, like we used to just show up and be in the room and like, you know, you kind of, you, you prove yourself and then you make room mm -hmm. for others, right? But it's harder to have those kind of, those moments where you're in the conferences, you're in meetings, where you get introduced to people, you brought in your network, you defy expectations, you know, all of those things. So I'm a little, I feel like maybe, I don't, I'm curious if you had the same feeling, but I'm a little worried we slid backwards as females in the sector during this two-dimensional world that we're living in. It, it's certainly um, unfortunate because I know what you're, you're exactly what you're referring to is when we would be in a conference and I might be standing off to the side talking to you or to hear a, and it, it wouldn't fail that someone would be walking by and you might say, oh, wait, wait, come here, come here. I want you to, to, to uh, meet Deborah. Um, yes. And that was so organic and uh, and just really set up a lot of relationships for, and I'm not even really just talking about myself, but people beyond me, because that was a frequent event. Um, you know, I, I, I think certainly losing that face-to-face um, -face, uh, connection doesn't help. Um, I also, yeah, I was in New York City last week, and I think people are starting to open up and get out a little more. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, you you brought up a, a topic that actually I know Javier and I spoke about, um, which is Mexico. Yeah, we have controversy. Uh, you know, <laughs> I am super bullish. Deborah has a different opinion. So, like, <laughs> let's start with you, Emily. Like, what <laughs> what is your take on Mexico? So, Deborah, I actually just replied to your comment on LinkedIn because I think it's a fair question, and it's the first question, obviously, that was on my mind when I went down on diligence almost two and a half. No, it was two what years was ago question? to wait, this wait. week. What was the question? Oh, about cartels. I, I, I was a Debbie Downer. I, I mentioned on LinkedIn um, because Emily was quoted in a story on Bloomberg yeah. um, and she's very she she had some very positive things to say. And, and I've just we'll we'll get to my opinion. But but <laughs> go first, Emily. <laughs> I think that. So, OK, so I know a lot. You know, obviously, I think the first thing that comes to mind when people think about Mexico is what is what's going to happen with the cartels? Like, why wouldn't they stay? as a part of this this whole thing because they've run the drug trade which has unfortunately included cannabis because we've the united states systematically kind of turned this into a racist issue and and specifically targeting targeting mexican americans and mexicans in general but which is why i'm so happy for legalization for the mexican citizens to take back some control and some power over the the benefit of having cannabis as a legal product um, when I, so I've spent a lot of time in Mexico. I was going there about every month for the last two years until actually it was the last place I was before everything shut down. And, um, so I spent time in the Senate. I spent time with COFEPRI, which is like their FDA. And I spent time with the Secretariat de Salud and also with the government and the DF, which is the district, um, uh, you know, Ciudad de Mexico. Um, but, you know, we sp I spent a lot of time understanding where they were sitting on the cartels and what they're thinking about it. And one of the things that quickly ascertained is that would I be investing in a farm in Jalisco? Probably not. 
I will probably think very carefully about how I will participate in the supply chain of cannabis in, in Mexico. Um, but where I got comfortable with participating was in more of the GMP manufacturing and distribution side. And the reason for that is that they already have infrastructure in place, which the laws largely emulate, actually they perfectly emulate, which is the controlled substances regulations around even the raw material, the tracking and tracing of raw materials, the tracking and tracing of manufacturing and tracking and tra tracing of distribution. And so we, I was very interested in the company that we did invest in that they already had all of that infrastructure in place. And largely that is because of the cartels because the cartels play in other many myriad of industry, including um, opioids and, um, even avocados. Um, so, uh, so that was why we were very specific about where to participate in the supply chain and believe that the infrastructure is there to support it. But I would be cautious about which aspects I, I would participate in. And I'll just say this, I think the government officials that I met with, and I'll give them credit for this, acknowledged that the cartels are kind of a known entity that you just have to kind of navigate and you're trying to get more of it into the legal supply chain. It's kind of like California. We dealt with, we deal with the illicit market. It's such an immense level out here, but you try to get as much into the legal supply chain and it's safer for everybody on every level, including on consumption. But, um, but you have to kind of acknowledge that they exist and that, that they may participate in certain aspects of it. Does that make sense? Sure. I, I thought, um, you know, the New York Times had a big story uh, talking about how big this market was going to be. And I felt like the New York Times story um, kind of looked at the Mexican market the same way you would look at the European market um, or the Latin American market. And as someone who grew up in Texas, so I grew up not far from that country and there almost all the the pot and the marijuana, weed, whatever you want to call it, you know, when I was growing up, all came from Mexico. It all came from Mexico and came into the United States. And then when we started to legalize it and the product got really good here, um, you actually started to see a lot of the United States cannabis going back across the border. Um, and then the cartel, when they were losing that kind of industry, they've started, like you mentioned, the other drugs, but then they've also started doing things like stealing oil, and selling oil on the black market back into the United States, which is a whole different crazy story. But I, I just feel like it that market can't be approached with the same analysis that you would approach these other markets with. I think it's a vastly different situation because of the cartels and because of the government's inability to control them. And I think that, you know, I think that if the money starts to flow in and it starts to become a big business, they're going to want a part of that action. Yeah. I mean, I think they already <laughs> have a part of the action. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just all about how you, you think about how you participate. And um, that's why I think it's smart to participate in the already incredibly regulated and structured aspects of it. But yeah, I think it's a, and it's an evolving country, you know? I think that you can just see what's happened in Tulum, uh, like Todos Santos and north of Cabo, um, San Miguel de Allende. I mean, these are major cultural. Yeah. yeah, and and forget the, I mean, Mexico City is to me more like 
Europe than what I think people think of when they think of Mexico. It's it's a stunning cosmopolitan center of art and uh, culture. So I think there's, um, I think that you just have to be really smart about it. It's not, um, you're not like trying to sell cannabis in, you know, British Columbia or uh, yeah, BC. It's a different, it's a totally different animal, mm -hmm. but you know, it's kind of like in sailing, you respect the conditions and you can figure out how to navigate them. Totally. It's, it's interesting though, to me, right? Like me being on the opposite extreme of the continent as you are. And I, I rarely yeah. think about cartels when talking about Mexico, right? Like you bring it up now. And to me, it's like, it's not even an important part of my investment thesis. I think it should be though, right? I'm still bullish you know, for myriad other reasons, but I do think they do play into the, into this um, equation, just maybe not as much as one would assume, right? Or as one would think, you know, from, from media being in the US. Uh, they do have a lot of power, but also, you know, the government has a lot of power and they, and they want mm -hmm. to regulate and, you know, they're, they're asking, what's the right decision? What's the right way to go with this? You know, do we include them in order to avoid alienating them or do we not? Because, I mean, do you want very dangerous, not great people, you know, providing, you know, people legal medicine? I don't know. I don't know what's the right answer, right? There clearly isn't like a clear cut answer there, but no, it's interesting to have to factor that in. Uh, and I think we'll have to do an entire show about Mexico. That's <laughs> uh, the here. next uh, Benzing a Cannabis Hour. <laughs> Unfortunately, thank we've so run much. out of time. Um, but thank you so much thank for joining you. us. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you again on so soon. So good to see you, Emily. So good to see you. I can't wait to see you in been person. been too long. <laughs> it's been way too long. Take My care, love guys. To, to all I guess we need to go to Mexico and research that market a little, a little more closely. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm there. Research, yeah. Best diligence Great. ever. All right, Thank take you. care, guys. Thanks, yes. Emily. Research, you say it's yeah. And I could talk to her for like Thank hours. You, oh yeah, I you know. And one of my favorite things about uh, her and Poseidon um, is that. She has always been more of the face of Poseidon than her brother Morgan and they're equal partners. They created the, the firm together. And, you know, as we were saying, it's more common to see, you know, the white male be the face of a company, right? It just yeah. helps. It helps raise money. It helps, you know, with credibility, especially them launching in, you know, like eight years ago. Right. And they were coming out saying, Hey, we're traditional finance, but in cannabis. And it's like, but also, a woman, it's like, yeah, just, it, it was a strong bet. And, and I always appreciated that. And I always appreciated that from Morgan as well, right? Now he is doing a lot more media, but the fact that he never felt the need, at least, you know, it, it, that didn't seem that way, right? That he never felt the need to go like, hey, I'm here too, right? You know, right. why is all my, you know, my sister getting all the attention? It's, it's something, you know, pretty progressive, pretty tw 21st century. I, agree. I always and she's always been so um, accessible to lots of women and their companies, um, whether she invested in them or not. She was always very accessible and always willing to um, listen and give advice, you know, for free yeah. <laughs> and give up her give her time. So she's she's truly a gem within the industry. Yeah. And that's why she's so beloved. Right. It's. Mm -hmm. 
it's easy to to forget that many investors seem to be very beloved because they cut the checks right and and it you know they they just walk around and everyone is is you know sucking up to them because they want their investment dollars you know but then they leave and and people are, usually don't love them as much as it seems and and you know when she leaves a room and, and and people continue talking about emily they go like oh yeah no she's great she she really is great and she has supported so many people and and advised so many people for free right without expecting anything in return myself included uh and i assume you too right oh she's she's always been a friend of of green market report and um and and even before i found a green market report when i was writing at the street she was always a, a great source and always giving of her time but yeah she's she's been a a, a good friend and uh, a good colleague Definitely. And and so is our next guest. Uh, we have Dina Roman from GTI uh, Industries, Green Thumb Industries, and she is the SVP of Corporate Affairs. GTI is also publicly traded on the OTC. It's GTBIF. Once again, GTBIF. Dina, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Javier and I were laughing earlier that that um, we want to change GTI's ticker. It makes us crazy. We want it to be GTI. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if only we could have chosen. Yes. <laughs> I, I know you're going to go back to them and say, hey, you guys, Javier and Deborah. But... Right. <laughs> I'll have it done for you to buy tomorrow. No problem. OTC <laughs> is, is open to feedback. I got to say they're very responsive and easy to talk to. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not being facetious. This is for real. Like they're very easy to talk to. Like, you know, they're, they're responsive. So I don't know, maybe you give them a call. You ask them for a ticket change. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll add it to the list. No problem. What's Love that your background? background. That's, that's some, yeah. some fancy fall, wallpaper you got there. It is. It is. So I'm at the Green Thumb Industries headquarters in Chicago. Uh, we recently moved floors within the building and as part of that got to, you know, do some fancy things with the space. And so this is one of the offices. So I, you know, when I do come into the office, um, I like to take this one. I love the wallpaper. That's so awesome. that's a great point. I mean, I'm still working out of my home. Um, are, what, what is your physical situation? Are people starting to come in and out of the office? Very few. Um, so I think we have around, I think we have over 200 employees in the Chicago area. And I would say today there are 10 of us here in the office. Um, so what's nice about that is uh, for me, you know, some days it's nice to get out of the house. And then when you come to the office, social distancing is not an issue. You know, I'm, I'm probably you know, 30 feet away from the next person. So, and everybody's masked except when they're in their office. So, um, you know, feeling very safe. And after a year at home, I'm just, I was just desperate for a change of scenery some days. Yeah. And I remember when you, uh, I was visiting Chicago when you first moved to the, to that building, the same mm -hmm. office. And uh, I think it was Linda who, who reached out and said like, Hey, you got to come see your new office because because it was one of the very few com cannabis companies that really had like an executive looking office, right? A yeah. big office, you know, with, with the with the traditional office layout, right? Uh, have you seen a lot more of this pop up in Chicago? I know it's, it's becoming an, I mean, and not just, you know, the offices themselves, right? The office is just a proxy, right? A metaphor yeah. for, for the growth of the industry, right? But I know Chicago has become an epicenter for, for a lot of things cannabis. What are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, I was watching Emily's wonderful interview and 
I got involved in the cannabis industry back in 2014. And at the time saying you were from Chicago, I mean, it's, it was like saying you're from Omaha, like yeah, it's kind yeah, of like, why? less why relevant. I'd go to conferences. I mean, nobody wanted to talk to us. You know, we were just, we weren't in Colorado, like move on. Right. Illinois, where, where, where is yeah. Illinois? It's right. Illinois, right? Right. Nobody knew we had a legal medical program. I mean, we were just, we were irrelevant. We were okay with it, but we're like, you know, we're all like very Midwestern companies. We're like, that's okay. We don't need a lot, a lot of hoopla. And we just kind of like all put our heads down and just worked hard on expanding. So it's hilarious to all of us, you know, that we look around and now we're called like, you know, the Silicon Valley of cannabis and yep. truly within a few square block radius here in downtown Chicago. Yeah. We have our beautiful headquarters. Cresco has their beautiful headquarters. Verano has their amazing headquarters. Pharmacan, um, what else we got you know uh yeah so anyhow i mean those are just you know a handful but you know and and they've all done similar things of to me combining the best of both worlds where we have you know the benefits of like a true corporate office where you know there's um you know plenty of conference rooms and space and things like that but also you know you put the cannabis spin on it so everywhere you walk around our office you know you're at a cannabis company um you know there's there's pictures of weed there's the conference rooms have funny names like um, the hot box and things like that, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so we get to have like a little fun and not be too buttoned up and sort of maintain some of the like some real like culture in it. Uh, so it's fun. I know we did a Green Market Report had done a conference in Illinois in 2019 and and, and GTI was um, a sponsor with us. And I remember when we had announced we were going to do a conference in Illinois and in Chicago, people were like, what are you talking about? No one's going to go. Illinois. And, and it really was mostly Illinois people. But that was right when the governor said, yep, we are going adult use. And boy, it, it just was like the floodgates opened. And and that market, um, again, people thought well, it, it, it might go well. It has blown away everyone's expectations. It's just been a crazy, incredibly successful market. Yeah, true, true. And, uh, you know, when the governor here legalized adult use, I mean, we launched adult use sales six months later, it was like, foot on the gas, go, don't look back. Um, and we pulled it off. Uh, really proud of, of what we've done in Illinois. Um, just it is, it's been incredible growth. Um, but I think growth done pretty well. Um, social equity piece has some work and improvement to go, but the rest of it going pretty well. Yeah. Another interesting market you just got into is California, right? You, you just made yes. your debut in California. What was the rationality behind that? Why now, right? Why not? Why not earlier? Why now at all? I mean, what what's the logic there? You know, I mean, I I love where I work. I've been with Green Thumbs, you know, since the earliest days, and uh, we're just a thoughtful company, and we're all about timing, right? We don't like to uh, just plant a flag for the sake of planting a flag. It has to be the right opportunity at the right time. So, uh, yeah, thrilled to open our first California store in Pasadena last week. But why? Because it was the right time to be in California, which is a pretty chaotic market, and it was the right part of California uh, to be for us to, you know, start um, our California experience, you know, uh, we'll see where we go from there. But um, it's always just right time, right place. Dina, you're you're definitely working with the company um, on, as, as Javier said, government and regulatory affairs. 
Are you seeing with any of the newer states that are starting to pass legalization that their programs are maybe um, trying to emulate existing markets rather than trying to recreate the wheel? Because in the beginning, in the early days, we did see a lot of that where states were like, I'm going to, we're going to do this special to our state. We're going to do what works for our state. And I feel like, okay, so we've had enough of those and all these crazy different uh, sets of rules and regs. Are you starting to see more replication versus going all my own? Yeah, I would say, um, honestly, over the past three years, um, especially the states east of the Mississippi, I would reckon to say 80% of the regulations are more or less identical, sometimes literally a copy paste from one state to another. And I would say it's more like 20% that you have to really be mindful of where they go to, you know, try to differentiate. Um, but, you know, Illinois, very successful program. And so we did see states literally cut, copy, paste some of our regulations, you know, going forward, which was nice for me. I used to do be in our legal and regulatory compliance department. So I loved when I'm like, oh, I've seen this language, you know, many times before. <laughs> you I know, at 3 a.m. one morning. <laughs> exactly. So the learning curve, you know, got a little easier, which was nice. Um, yeah, you know, I think now um, there's new states coming online have the benefit of, of seeing which programs are going well, what did they get right, what did they get wrong, and honestly kind of take the, the best parts from, you know, each state. So I do see each state getting closer to really getting it right. Um, never perfect. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and, and as a national company, you know, we operate um, in 12 states. Very difficult if you have truly different regulations in every market. Um, the nice thing is we've been able to kind of um, streamline our operations where again, I'm making up a number, but something like 80% of what we, you know, our standard operating procedures can just apply across the board. And then you're just making sure to tailor that 20% for the state. Um, you know, usually we have CEOs or CFOs or investors in the show, right? Uh, so I have a question and a follow-up, right? The, the, okay. the first part of the question is, what does your job entail? You know, uh, what, what do you do? Yeah. And like, what's your background, right? Like, did you study political science or something like something like that? Not at all. So um, my background is as an attorney. Um, so I practiced commercial litigation for 15 years where um, I was representing plaintiffs and defendants in disputes, business disputes, you know, breach of contract, fraud, director and officer liability, things like that. Um, and made partner at a law firm, had a nice office, you know, kind of like had made my parents real proud, all that. And then medical cannabis came along in Illinois and I can't really explain it. These are like those lightning bolt moments where I like, I don't know how I'm gonna get into this industry, but I'm getting in. I'm finding my way in, I don't know. And um, I did, I, I won, you know, through this, that and the other, got introduced to Ben Kovler, who founded um, Green Thumb Industries, helped him and, and basically told him, oh, well, because of my, you know, 15 years of legal skills, I can help you write these competitive license applications for Illinois. And I somehow convinced him that I could do that even though I'd never done a license application. Uh, so we were- could. It was true, you could. You yeah, know I mean, to, but you could learn. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the skills did transfer really well. I have to say, um, I, you know, my my sort of my gut was right. Um, that you know, if you can write, you can write. Um, but you know, we were very successful with that first round. So then I scandalized 
my colleagues, my parents, my friends, and I quit my job as a law firm partner to say, I'm gonna plant my flag and be a cannabis lawyer. Um, good news is my very first cannabis law client was Green Thumb Industries. <laughs> so then I started doing the competitive license applications we did for uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Ohio. And that was just generating more and more, not just application work, but regulatory compliance and legal work. So at some point it made sense for me to come in-house at GTI. So then I was doing regulatory compliance and legal work. And then about two years ago, I really saw um, a gap, you know, that really could be filled at Green Thumb, which was to formalize government relations. I was informally doing a lot of government relations work, but, um, you know, we had matured enough as a company to really say it's time to formalize it. So... That's how I wound up in this department. It wasn't really through being a political science student or, um, you know, a political science training exactly. More just um, trial by fire in the cannabis industry for the last seven years. Um, I figured out how to talk to regulators, how to talk to legislators, how to go to a city council meeting and um, hold that community meeting all about bringing adult use cannabis to a community. Um, so the job in doing government relations and cannabis is, is multi-pronged. You're really dealing with um, your lo very hyper-local challenges of um, wanting to expand your dispensary in a particular community and having to you know, override any public opposition or convert your medical dispensary into you know, same-site adult use. Um, so you're having those community meetings, attending planning and zoning meetings, attending city council meetings, things like that. Um, then you've got your state level government relations where you're, uh, you know, working with lobbyists to impact state level legislation. Then you've got your federal lobbying and, you know, federal advocacy uh, to bring about, you know, federal cannabis reform. So, you know, on any given day, it's, it's some combination of all of those. You mentioned um, social equity earlier. Um what is GTI doing along those lines and specifically with opportunities for women's? Because that's kind of the reason why, you know, Javier had this idea for this program was because it was International Women's Month. And um, I was curious, you know, what, what you're doing within the company for that. Yeah. So fortunately, again, because I've been with Green Thumb since the beginning, um, there's been a lot of organic momentum here for, for women and uh, for social equity in the sense that um, I founded a not-for-profit called Illinois Women in Cannabis back in August of 2014. Um, I co-founded it with Wendy Berger, who was um, on the board of Green Thumb Industries from the very beginning. She's probably, I think, the first woman to serve on uh, you know, a cannabis company board, um, and she's just been with Green Thumb since the beginning. So Wendy and I just um, saw that the cannabis industry was coming to Illinois, and our view was, you know, it's an industry too new to have a glass ceiling or a grass ceiling. <laughs> so we really wanted to raise awareness from day one of the opportunities for women, you know, beyond just having a license, but all of the ancillary opportunities. So we started holding networking events and growing that. So did that for Green Thumb, not sorry, not for Green Thumb, just separately through Illinois Women in Cannabis. Um, and then Green Thumb all along, um, so, you know, was doing tons of community benefit work and social equity work, but again, less, less formalized. Um, and so last year we created a corporate social responsibility department and, um, you know, had 
developed four pillars, one of which is social equity. So we could drive all of our internal and external um, activities towards those four pillars. So for social equity, um, wide range. So one of our premier things we've done was partner with Last Prisoner Project. Um, you know, to we donated with partners over a hundred thousand um, dollars to fund LPP um, to free um, prisoners and cannabis for prisoners there for nonviolent cannabis offenses. Um, and then uh, a program where I'm really proud of that we developed. Um, uh, back in 2019 is called the LEAP program. It's the License Education Application Program. Very and, cool. Huh? It's very cool. Yeah, and so, you know, I got my start at Green Thumb um, doing these competitive license applications. So now we developed an in-house program, totally free. Green Thumb takes no financial interest in any of the applicants, but we provided um, weekly one-on-one -on -one counseling and group counseling to Illinois social equity applicants. That is awesome. Yeah. Dina, this is our time for today. Okay. Uh, really hope you can join us again sometime soon. But thank you so much. This Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks, Dina. Yep. You know, some, something really, really interesting she was saying, you know, about uh, Illinois women in cannabis and how they got together and, and try to explore options within the cannabis industry beyond just growing. And that's something that uh, a lot of people struggle to understand, right? Imagining getting into cannabis or being successful in cannabis without growing cannabis. And you know, all the people on the show today, none of them have ever grown cannabis for, for money, right? For commercial purposes, right? You have started a business and, and, and never needed to grow cannabis. Emily, you know, uh, focuses on investing. Lori tests the cannabis, right? So I don't know. And, and of course, like Dean is a lawyer. Yeah, she works for a grower, but I don't know. Something that I, I always like to think about and tell people because. Well, and we I, often, I, yeah. I think it's also key that, you know, when she was talking about the LEAF program, is that here's this big corporate cannabis company, which is what a lot of people probably look at them as, even though, as she mentioned, you know, they've really just grown from what was a small company at one time and you know that they're helping other women get licenses that are basically going to be a competitor um but instead of you know worrying so much about their market share and 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 all that they're they're actually trying to help people go through a very onerous process which is getting a license which you typically need lots of money and lots of uh, expensive lawyers um, so I think that that's just really uh, very telling of the company's mission and its ethics that they're willing to put aside that greed and help out women within the state. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. And we have our guest uh, actually dropping some messages in the chat for us saying she loves the collaborative spirit of this industry. Uh, our next guest, she is wonderful. She has built, you know, she, she's had some help uh, and she has a good partner, but she's built, you know, quite the impressive company from scratch. Uh, next up, we have Rosie Matteo of Matteo Communications. Rosie. Hi guys, two of my favorites. This is gonna be a fun Monday. Yeah, this is yeah, this is like this is like a like a hangout. Yeah, yeah Ro Rosie and I put on makeup today. That's exactly right. Put on makeup. <laughs> uh, but next time I see you, we have our pizza, I will not be wearing makeup. That's right. Yeah, 
I, 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 thought, I thought when I go to the gym, they're all going to be like, oh, she's she's that girl that wears makeup to the gym. And it's like, no, of course, <laughs> you know, you have your mask on and all they can right. see is your eyes and they see all this makeup and they think, oh, she's one of those. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Thank you, Rosie, for, for coming on. Thanks for having me guys today. So as Javier was saying, um, you've built your company uh, into a powerhouse. So Rosie and I have known each other for, for several years now. I, I first knew Rosie when she was out on the West Coast in Seattle. She was just starting uh, to create her own business. And then she and her husband moved back to the East Coast um, and their four lovely children. And boy matteo communication is got the hot hand right now you guys have some of the most amazing clients your employees are lovely people i love working with them they work very hard <laughs> there is not a day i don't go by without my nice. inbox getting an email from a from a matteo com person um if not more than one uh so you've really uh, done something amazing here and and i I applaud you for that. Um, you know, the, the latest thing with the the SPAC that you guys were doing with Jason is just huge. I mean, Rosie was on a clubhouse with Chris Weber. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I have to pinch myself. I'm like, am I really on a clubhouse with Chris Weber? Am I actually texting him? Like I have I sometimes I don't believe it's real, but I, I'm so grateful for for all the opportunities this uh, career has brought me, that's for sure. Well, you've worked yeah. hard. I mean, you you have definitely worked your ass off. It was not handed to you. No, I, I did work hard, but you know, I was just I just had lunch with a with a friend, which is like I, I used to not be able to have lunch. So we get to have lunch sometimes, and I was saying that um, there is just something about when you wake up in the morning, just really excited about like when you're welding something and you're loving it. Like I can't wait to get up in the morning, and that's just sort of how I feel about this industry. Not that there's not stresses every day, but. I do, I do love everything that we do. So the working hard, like, is fun for me. Who was well, your first client? You, you, you once told me that story. I, I was, I was trying to remember, you know, because you know, from that first client to today, where you have how many? Like, how I, think many we're, I think we're like fifty-two clients today. So, which wow. is and it was six years are there ago. How many, yeah, are there that many cannabis companies? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I know there. I know how they're going to scale. All right, we have so but many. To, but to my friends, right, like in VC outside of cannabis, I tell them this one lady reps fifty-five cannabis companies, and they would go like. I don't think there are those, you know, that many cannabis companies out there. There you know. are, there are. There and, are. You know, we work with, with some of the, with some of the best, and they're all great people. But yeah, my first client was actually over six years ago. I think you, know, you guys know a little bit. My background was in in specialty food PR, and I had some tech background because my husband had a startup, and I was his publicist. So I got into tech that failed, but you know, the, the contact stayed with me. And we had just moved out to Seattle, Deborah. You mentioned I was living on the West Coast. And I was approached to do the launch of a crowdfunding campaign for a cookbook because I had food and tech background and it was a cannabis cookbook. And it was a very, very successful campaign. I went to just my normal editor, the, you know, Florence Fabricant in the New York Times, and she wrote the story. So I just, it was a very successful campaign. A little light bulb went off in my head that I said, I can bring my mainstream background to the space. And that's really how I met Deborah. Deborah, at that point, I think was still writing for WWD. I think you were still doing a little bit for that. And we had lunch in Brian Park. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you were, you were going ice skating. Um, but yeah, so that was my oh, first yes. I worked at Dub Dub D. Yes, I worked at Dub Dub D for a hot minute. And uh 
Um, we're right there. Anyway, but anyway, the friendship grew. Once once I knew a lady was going to lunch and then going ice skating, I'm like, I got I gotta know this gal. But we've been we worked together for a long time. But that was my first like little project client, and then my first like agency record client, or I I worked with a social network called Hi There, and then I was living in Seattle and I met the guys from Headset. They had just exited Leafly and were starting this new company. And we met at a networking event and hit it off. And we've been with them almost six years now. So that was like our first agency record client. We've been with them all this time. Well, and you have also seen the industry cycle up and cycle down. So, so you and I have had those conversations where, um, you know, the first thing that happens when business starts to not go well is they cut that PR marketing budget. It's it's just the fastest thing to get lopped off the the PNL. Um, you where where do you feel like cannabis companies are right now in that cycle? Because it feels like I feel like with 2021 things are starting to cycle back up. My inbox is starting to get full again. <laughs> yeah. So I think you know we've seen a lot of cycles, and yes, obviously you know we. We, we don't always have 55 clients, right? And I'll say even COVID, for example, like we're coming up on a year on it. A year ago, like next week, I was crying. You know, we were, you know, when people didn't know what was going to happen, even before this like being deemed essential thing happened, we were like, I got a lot of calls that week. And I remember calling the tri partners, you guys know, and being like, are we going to make it? Right. But then obviously, you know, this year has been a watershed year for cannabis being deemed essential, the election and, you know, everything in between. And people are really geared up for 2021 to, to be a big year. And people are investing in marketing. A lot of our clients have some enormous campaigns that they're going to be bringing to market. And, you know, they're feeling the wind is at their back. You know, we've got this, you know, blue, you know, the blue, the blue sweep uh, of Georgia and people are prepping for you know, what could be. So we are seeing a ramp up again, but it, you know, marketing, you know, it, it can be very cyclical. Um, you do work with a lot of publicly traded companies, right? And, and you always like to pretend like, oh no, I, I, I am not a finance buff, but you know, like you, you deal with, with finance on, on a daily basis, right? And, and things have changed a lot, right? And, and, and of course, public markets are increasingly fast paced. What has changed in, in the last few years in, in, on the public front? Like, what have you seen there? What, well, what is different? What is the same in terms of, of companies and how they communicate their achievements and their challenges? Yeah, I think what's really exciting is that, you know, there was like this, you know, crunch in the market where all these Canadian companies like weren't fulfilling on fulfilling their promises. Right. And we're working with, you know, some Canadian companies, mostly U.S. traded MSOs, a lot of them. Right. Or U.S. based companies who are delivering on the promise. Right. Like they're they're showing these record quarters. And so we're seeing like real things happen, right? They're having revenue. They're going into more markets. They're launching the products they're talking about. So as a marketing person, you want to be able to stand behind the campaigns that you're doing. I know that they're, these companies are going to be lasting a lifetime, right? We're building brands right now. We're building an industry. So I think that's changed. There's like a lot of realness in the market, like, and not a promise. He was delivering on the promise. So when there's like a real authentic story, um, that is like magic for us. And also, I think what's been really great because these companies are doing well, they're all starting to do good. You know, as you know, I was listening in, obviously in, in the, the background, like GTI, Cura Leaf, Terrison, they're all like trying to give back because they're doing small in the markets. And I'm loving seeing that. You know, I think um, it is International Women's Month. And I think one of the most impressive things about you, Rosie, is that you do all this while you're juggling being a mom of four beautiful little girls and but they're active four. girls. They're Beautiful, in. but still, it's still four. It's a lot. 
It's a lot. And, it's and a lot. they're running all over the place with all kinds of crazy schedules. Um, you've been fortunate in that your husband was able to, to step aside and be a, a stay-at-home dad. Uh, but I know that certainly for a while there, that was a real um, balancing act, as, as it is for a lot of women uh, with children, women with children in the cannabis industry, which is, is a whole other thing. Um, can you maybe just talk a little bit about finding that balance? Because I know it, it was a, it, you make it look easy. <laughs> it wasn't always that. It was not easy. It was absolute chaos. And, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I have like, you know, such a supportive husband who's amazing with the kids. But it, even with having help, it's like you're, you're always going to be a mom. And for somehow that always like you have that draw that it needs to come first. Right. So when you're building a busy industry and a building, you know, a, a company and you're in like a very, very fast paced industry, it can be really challenging. And if you don't have help, whether it be, you know, a family member or, you know, paid help, it can be feel almost impossible. And even like, I'll bring it back to COVID, you know, I was working from home. I, I still had Dan here, but there were kids running around in the background. It's really hard. The only thing I will say, which what I love about this industry is that the women are just so, like I was saying in the chat, collaborative, that everybody's really there to lift each other up. So there's days when I'm feeling down, I reach out to my industry friends and we all lift each other up. So like, that's one of my favorite things, but it's it's really hard because we're also at this time where I don't want to miss any opportunities, right? So there are a lot of plays that I missed when they were in school and, and I and I did miss recitals and those are moments I can't get back to. I think it's worthwhile because I feel like I'm building something that will help my children for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. But there are definitely dark days where I wish I could be a better or more involved mother and not be, you know, on calls all the time. But I have to do puts and takes here. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember, you know, one of your first uh, features about you, like you and not a client uh, on the media was in Market Watch. And they, they call you something like a marijuana mommy. And you <laughs> told this this story about how you you would wear a, a T-shirt with, you know, something about weed to pick up your kids at school. And some 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 of the mothers would give you kind of the stink eye. Um, has this changed? Like, have you seen the stigma evolve? Are you really now like one of the coolest moms at school or do they still look at you like? I like to think I'm a cool mom. My daughters probably have a different take on it. I'm like so <laughs> embarrassing, but no, the stigma has changed so much and it really is so gratifying. I think people thought I was a little weird in the beginning when I was living out in Seattle and showing up with my high there t-shirt, but I've always been like unabashedly proud about what I'm doing. So I try not to, you know, think much of it. And now that we've been back to New York and it's six years later, I don't know anybody who doesn't have somebody who's got some sort of involvement, you know, with cannabis. Even the other day, I got a phone call about how I balance it. Like from, she called me twice. It was like a mother from my kid's school saying, I didn't know if you got the invite for, for Dahlia to come to the birthday party. I said, look, I'm just like a hot mess. I, it's very hard. I get a lot of emails. I must've missed it. So she's giving me the details of the birthday party. And then she goes, oh, and by the way, I happen to be like a cannabis patent attorney. So like everybody, I, like I, I did not expect that conversation. I thought she was a, just a stay-at-home mom, like a lot of the other mothers, but she also had a cannabis play. So I, I think it's like so much fun to have all these people in my life now part of the cannabis industry. They do still ask me if I can get them weed. I'm like, I do not even have a medical card. So <laughs> I'm marking up the wrong tree. I can send you like a good, like a meme or a gif if you want to use it, but I, I can't get you any weed. Now they probably ask, hey, can you uh, hook me up with some drinks with Chris Weber some night? That's exactly <laughs> I go to the right. Chris Weber party. <laughs> by the way, like it, all of a sudden, like I have like all these like, you know, all the dads in the school care about what I do now once I had the Chris Weber thing. So that's right. 
what um what has been the hardest part about this growth because as you mentioned you know a year ago um at the beginning of of covid like i said everybody was cutting budgets it was it was insanity and now things are good you you're trying to manage a a, a fairly large group of employees remotely and and you had just to built this lovely beautiful office just had it all decked out it was so awesome and it was like get out um yeah yeah how has that been trying to manage this growth but do it over online it's really so weird that i have not met half of my employees in person like we, we it, it, it was a great year for us 2020 and i think you know once you know the strong you know stayed with us and we were able to grow right um i think the ones that left us probably like it was probably early for them to have pr anyway and it was a stretch for them right so um, so we've had tremendous growth this year and have our team that we built up this LA office. I've only know one person in the LA, two people in the LA office because they moved from New York there. I haven't met the eight people who are out there now. So that's been strange getting to know each other. As you know, we're a very tight knit group and, you know, we have fun together and we're missing that office culture. So I do think, you know, we're growing, but I, but being together, I think it would be exponential. So, you know, we're doing our best, you know, doing, you know, the, the, happy hours. Last night we did, um, you know, a breathing work session for my partner Mitch's birthday. So we're doing these things to keep us together, but it is hard not to like look somebody face to face. And also those conversations, that was like, we, like my biggest fear is like not delivering on the promise of Maddie. Right. Like I, you know, I, I've heard this like recently that most like entrepreneurs never feel like they're doing enough. So hopefully that's like, means I'm going to be successful, but there's that those conversations you have in the office when you're passing by and this free flowing information that you just can't have when we're meeting in our siloed group. So, you know, I think our work is great, but I do think there's something missing when you're not together in office. So hopefully we'll all be vaccinated in the next couple of months. And we do have plans to get back into our New York office in June and actually open a physical location in Los Angeles in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, because they're all vaccinated because they're essential workers and working in cannabis in, in LA, which is great. So I'm hoping we're going to be back to a little bit more normalcy, you know, as long as the CDC guidelines allow us to. That's very, very, very cool. It, it works out well that you're in New Jersey. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, um, yeah, and so we're excited about that, obviously, being like a New York, New Jersey-based agency. Like, we're very excited about what's to come. You know, we'll see when these things actually open up and people can go buy cannabis. But, you know, Cuomo's this morning saying it's it's moving forward. So we're pumped to be right here right now. Totally. And I think now maybe you're, you'll be able to get the weed, right? When, when mothers ask you, hey, can you get me some weed? It's like, yeah, you can too, but... I mean, if you I want mean, there's like two dispensaries yeah. opening by my mall, like a, a Rise GTI and like an Ascend. And I'm like, I take my girls to Nordstrom all the time. Like this, like <laughs> I leave them in the car. Do they come in with me? We got to figure out the logistics of this. <laughs> Let me go wreck. Um, I mean, do, would you mind uh, mentioning some of the public companies that you work with? And, and, and uh, the reason, or, or is it a no-no question? I don't know. Like, no, the, no. the reason why I ask is because companies come to you because you're great at, at, at your job, you know, but also you pick the companies you want to work with and conduct due diligence. Right. And then right. since this is an investor show, you know, disclosure here, of yes. course, Rosie has to say these companies are good, yes. but me, you know, looking from the outside, I can tell you most of the times, you know, seeing a company repped by Maxio is a, is a seal of approval. So I'm saying is the reason why I'm asking this question is at, at the very least, companies that are worth looking into, right? I mean, I, I can't, I can't make, I can't make recommendations. I'm not a registered advisor, yeah. but 
We do work with some, with some with some public companies. Um, we work with TerraSan, we work with CureLeaf, we work with GreenLane, Jushi, um, Harborside, to name some of them. Um, you know, and we're really excited to mostly represent U.S. cannabis. You know, um, we're we're just excited about you know the the winds at our back. You know, everyone's having these these record quarters. So you know, we feel very proud to be representing across the supply chain. Like GreenLane is you know uh you know their ancillary their packaging their uh, distribution all that and then we have obviously some of the mso so a, a nice mix and and we really loved the ir part of our business right so this is something that we've grown over the past year i think uh january 2020 we had one ir client and now we're doing best relations of i think nine or ten so that's been very exciting and just some of that things that i that i didn't know i i, I was not an investor relations expert so you brought in rob kelly who used to lead um the aurora um, I, I are an apartment in house. So he's, yeah. he's taught me a lot and it's been really fun to like learn how to run an IR firm. Like I, people know I'm very open, like I'm, I'm building the plane somehow as I'm building it, but the work we've done on behalf of some of our IR clients has been, you know, really, um, it has been really exciting. And uh, part of that is like we get to do these investor days and do some of the production of it. All these things that I used to do when I produced large scale events for mainstream companies. So that's been a really fun part of it. And we're seeing the work translate into, you know, stocks going up. So that's been cool. You know, and, and one of the things that has certainly been a challenge for you as a PR person in cannabis is that you can't do the standard typical uh, promotional stuff with some cannabis companies, depending on the state. Um, you have to be very careful how you do an event and, and how you talk about the companies. Um, has that, you know, created a, an opportunity for you because for some of these cannabis companies that have gone to more of the fifth avenue type advertising firms they found that those advertising firms didn't quite understand how to promote them yeah but you guys have i mean that was always the thing i loved about you rosie was you thought outside the box you were very creative you approached each company um by selling their unique uh, abilities versus just a you know a rubber stamp approach so you know where are you you know where are you finding the opportunities now to to promote and the, and and to rise above those challenges yeah and i would say one of the challenges is you ask like you know what are the things like stress this out is sometimes like we'll be with a, a cannabis company and they feel like they want to go to like a fifth avenue mainstream pr firm right and like Big that's thing. our competition like yeah. a lot of the public ones like aren't working the space but there are definitely some boutique agencies that represent a warby parker and they want to come to cannabis but they don't understand the nuances and to them it's also very new so like we'll be on a call like with the with the client we have and they've got a mainstream agency on as well we'll be their cannabis trade you know you know agency and they'll have this great new idea like did you know that cannabis is a wellness product i'm like we've been talking about it since 2014 like this is not if you try to pitch that to anybody they're not like really um like i haven't heard about that so i mean i think that we understand like the nuances of every dip of different um you know, jurisdictions is very important because like every state even has different ways you can be pitching it. Like we know in Florida, we need to get like our pitches approved by the Department of Health because we need to make sure we're not we're not saying anything that is not compliant. So you have to understand that we understand that you can't make claims. We also want to have fun with this. Right. So we've thought of like creative mailers using swag or um, 
using like a holiday, just trying to be as creative as you can given and being compliant. And it's very different doing compliant PR or compliant marketing versus being able to just ship any product across state lines to any editor and hope they try it. And also like even in the States where we can get product to people legally, like a California where we can, you know, go through a delivery service and do it through the POS systems, you know, like cannabis is expensive. It's not the same as sending a pair of plastic eyeglasses to somebody. So we need to be like very diligent about who we pitch. Are they actually going to write a story? Not that there's ever quid pro quo, but we want to be really targeted because that's real money that we're sending out. Like, yeah. I don't want to go back to a client and say, we send out $30,000 worth of free products and got no media from it. So we need to be really diligent of who we're pitching and whether this is part of their beat. So we try to be creative, but also really thoughtful um, with, with client spend as well. This is awesome. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're running to, to an end here at the show, but, you know, your closing guest. Uh, and, you know, let's go back to the theme of the show for a second. Uh, this is International Women's Month, Women's March, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you are honestly one of the most beloved uh, women in the industry, most revered. And every, every woman I know in the industry looks up to you. And, and don't get me wrong, some have been even more successful than you, which is quite the feat, right? And they still look up to you, right? Um, so I don't know, like any concluding thoughts on, on, on why you, and how you built this and, and, and really generated the sense of sorority in, in the industry and, yes, and yes. what we can do. I will say that it's back to my, I love the collaborative spirit of this industry. Like I'm, I'm competitive with one person, me. Right. And I'm a firm believer that if you bring people along for the ride and you collaborate and I mean, even Cynthia, right, we were like competitors because you're both publicists in space. We've been collaborating together since day one. And, and I'm a firm believer in that when women help each other and we open our networks and we bring each other into the room and we share each other's investor decks and we invite each other to events. This is how we all win. Like this is not a time in a nascent industry for women to be infighting. It just doesn't work that way. And I think that's why I've created a great network and I respect all the women that I work with in the industry and they respect me because it's genuine. Like I love the women I work with. And I think if we had more of that and people really work together, we'd go so much further than just trying to look out for our own interests. And it sounds cheesy, but it's the way I live my life. And I think it works. Deborah, any last questions? I don't, I don't want to be the, the one doing the last question. I'm yeah, you're, you're an awesome ally for women hobbies. So that would be fine. Yeah, well, you guys, you part of it is recognizing so. this is not my spot. So Deborah, please take it away. Well, I, I think it, it um, can't go without saying that Rosie is also um, a fitness buff and you've got a charity event that you're working on. Um, maybe you can mention that uh, if people aren't aware Rosie's been on this journey and, you know, she, um, you know, when, when COVID started and the, and the gyms were closed, it was like, what am I going to do? And, and I get it. Cause, um, I'm also a, definitely an active person and live an active lifestyle. And so she created this home gym and she's been kind of documenting her, her journey with fitness. And she started a separate Instagram account called fit publicist. Oh but, Oh, good Lord. Yes, this is true. No, you but, her. But I did you, not know that. You have, a, you have an event that you're working on that's coming up this summer. I, I do. So we did this last year, um, you know, when everything happened with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement, we realized that, you know, there's so many ways that we need to be 
we need to help the industry, right? So one of the things that I wanted to bring one of my passions, which is fitness, and I bonded with um, Carson. Oh my God, please don't put it up there. But it's underscore, it's underscore publicist, by the way. You're gonna do it, make, make it be right, but I don't want to take <laughs> Oh my God, I'm a little embarrassed, but I'm not embarrassed, I'm unabashedly me. But um, so Carson Humiston, who is you know, the CEO of Banks, he both share this love of fitness with Deborah as well. And we decided last year that instead of just like raising money for Last Prisoner, which we were all donating anyway, we would, we would bring the industry together and try to raise you know some real money for it. So we, we trained for a 120 mile bike ride um, last August, we raised over $15,000. So we're back again this year, but we're doing a triathlon. Um, we're doing a June 6th. And um, I'll, I'll share the link on Twitter and on, on, on LinkedIn today if anybody wants to follow us. Um, so we're, the entire Matteo team is training for this triathlon. All like I think I think twenty five of the thirty five of us are actually training. The other ones are going to give out water bottles. But we're trying to raise you know more money this year for an important um, important organization using our passion for fitness. Then I'm going to do something with Deborah. I'm going to throw you up there. We're going to be doing a hike hopefully later on in the summer to raise money for some organizations as well. So. Excite the train for the triathlon, then get up on that mountain with uh, with Deborah. We're gonna have a good time staying active and raising money for some good causes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome, Rosie. Where can we reach you? Um, you can reach me. Well, at publicist, no, but <laughs> underscore. No, you can reach me at uh, reach me on LinkedIn at Rosie Matteo on Twitter on on Instagram. As you guys know, I'm very active on social. Um, so, and I respond to every DM. So please feel free. And Matteo.com is, is our website. So always feel free to reach out to us. Thanks, Rosie. This was fun. I was nervous, but this was fun oh. because we friends. So thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Bye. Uh, such a fun, fun interview. This is one of the, she's the definition to me of done come up. You know, you know, that, that kind of hip hop expression done come up. You know, when, when, when you, when you kind of made it and now you're flexing, you know, that's, that's what made me think about it. You know, you, you were just doing a little thing and it's like, she has earned her right to flex. Oh, absolutely. And, Both and like literally and metaphorically, right? Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I've known Rosie since she was kind of a one man shop and now she's grown yeah, to this um, huge organization and you know, it's it's fantastic to see. And she's always been a great supporter of Green Marker Report and myself personally. Um, we, we've become friends as well as uh, professional colleagues. And, you know, she's worked really hard and I, I give her props for creating something so wonderful because she has really worked hard. So she deserves it. Totally. And been That's a mom cool. to four kids during all this stuff. Like that's, I've, and I've just got one kid and he's in college. So <laughs> my and that's, days yeah. are over. <laughs> that's just the epitome of the of, of, of progress, the epitome of feminism, right? Having your extremely successful husband who works in finance leave his job to to be a stay-at-home dad because your business is doing so well. Well, and and Javier, you know that that because you 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 would have to travel from from Argentina to the U.S. and uh, to to because part of cannabis is you know involves a lot of travel, um, and it involves going to states where it's legal and where the companies are and where the stuff's happening uh, versus where you live, and yeah. that's certainly what Rosie and I were going through because I'm also on the East Coast. I'm in the New York area, and so she and I were constantly having to travel out to the West Coast yeah. to attend conferences or meet companies or or do things. 
and it, that's tough on your family when you're gone a lot and so it was tough know. for me at age 27 28 <laughs> like i was i was experiencing all kinds of body sores you know <laughs> so I, I can't even begin to fathom what the rest of the pressures you know on on top of that you know amount to yeah, yeah, it's and and here we are. Um, now we miss it. You know, we used to complain about, oh, I have to go to another conference this month. That's free this month. Oh, this is awful. I'm on a plane again, and we complained so much about that. And now it's like, oh, I miss everybody. <laughs> Everything is relative. What did yeah. you make of the show? Lots of fun. Lots of uh, of fabulous people. I'm glad we got a lot of time to speak with them, and and it wasn't just super fast. We, we were going to do that. And then, you know, I, I started thinking like, you know, these are great women. We can't just give them five minutes each. You know, that was my original idea here. And then I thought like, what is this, a telethon? You know? <laughs> like, I don't know. If, if we were trying to maybe raise money, we could do it. But but if we want to get to know these women and, and really understand what they did to, to be where they are today, and each very unique, each very unique and in very unique positions. Um, and it just shows the different layers within the cannabis industry and how women can participate at so many levels, whether you're at the top, like a CEO, or you're doing the PR and the marketing, you're doing the science, you're doing the regulatory, you know, there's just so many aspects. And it just shows that women can uh, fill just about any role within the industry. Now it's your time. Tell us about you. Where can we find you? How do we follow you? How do we follow your work, right? Well, you know, of course, I'm sure Benzing is going, ah, no, no, she's she's a competitor. Um, Market Report is uh, Cannabis Financial News, www.greenmarketreport.com. And that's where you can find me on social media. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty out there so I'm, I'm i like your twitter handle your, your handle is wall and broad but it's a yeah. plain words with wall and broad right so, so, you know i i What's don't think a lot there? of people know exactly what that means but um if you know where the new york stock exchange is it's at the corner of wall okay. street and broad street and so yes it was a play on that i've, I've been a financial reporter for for many years now and so it was a play on that 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 and and then also you know women being called broads and so i i thought that was a lot of fun it is it is i never like every time i i tag you on something i just get the giggles <laughs> i i fun it's funny because i think nowadays most people probably don't have any clue what that refers to anymore but and i used to when i worked at the street um we were on it was on wall street they've moved they're not on wall street anymore i don't think hardly anybody's on wall street anymore um <laughs> you know um the new york stock exchange still is well i mean it's one of those jokes for for insiders you know for people who get it it's especially funny mm -hmm. and i think it adds a little bit of something it's just like it's it's a little bit of pizzazz as they say yeah yeah deborah Thank you so much for joining us today. At, <laughs> Thank you uh, for having me. It was a lot of fun. This hour, you know, special edition. Um, for all those watching, please like and subscribe. Remember to tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time for the Benzinga Cannabis Hour. And now we're doing a daily show at 4 p.m. as well, the Cannabis Insider.
also on our YouTube channel. So tune in. We'll have Deborah again very soon, I'm sure. Um, this was all for today. <laughs> Thanks, Javier. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Get a Verizon Business Unlimited plan from the network businesses rely on. Hey, Monica, with 5G Ultra Wideband in many more cities, you get up to 10 times the speed at no extra cost. Hello, downloads in no time. Plus, unlimited premium data and hotspot data to keep the signal flowing and your teams going. Come in or book an appointment with a Verizon business expert to find the right plan for your team. 5G Ultra Wideband available in over 1,700 cities with Business Unlimited Pro 2.0 smartphone plan. Speed comparison is to median Verizon 4G LTE speeds. Download speeds may vary depending upon network and coverage conditions and content optimization for 5G Ultra Wideband. Hurry in to Mattress Firm's July 4th sale. Get a king bed for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $500 on Sealy. Plus, get a free adjustable base with qualifying Sealy purchase, up to a $4.99 value. Or shop Tempur-Pedic, the most highly recommended bed in America, and save $500 on all Tempur-Breeze mattresses and get a $300 instant gift good towards sleep accessories. Only at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. See store or mattressfirm.com for details.